0: Welcome, everybody. Come on in. Welcome and join me in the Winning Momentum podcast with your host. That's me, Scott Sinclair, uh, wishing everybody a great and successful week. Let's get at it. Last week, last week we had our first guest on the show as part of the new format of the Winning Momentum podcast. We did the transition from the prior brand of uh, Martinis with Scott, moved into this, and it was only fitting that we had a great friend, a great supporter of the show in the past, uh, David Cohen, um, uh partner with Gowling WLG, which is a Canadian and UK law firm. He specializes in bankruptcy, working with lenders, negotiation, helping companies that are in financial dispre- uh, distress, also a lending lawyer. And we had a fantastic discussion. If you haven't seen this episode, go back. It's episode 189 of the Winning Momentum podcast. This is episode 190. When you uh, listen to David on episode 189, and 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 again he's he's been a guest on many of the Martinis with Scott shows, so you've heard some of his content before if you're a longtime listener. But on on episode 189 of the Winning Momentum podcast, we talk. uh, David gives you insight on his negotiation strategy, uh, forbearance agreements, what a forbearance agreement is, and how to arrive at one when with your with your bank when you're in financial difficulty. We talk about treating stakeholders as stakeholders, right? Uh, you know, your bank, your lender, your investors, your shareholders, your employees, your suppliers, your customers—all of these groups are stakeholders. They're they're a part of your business and need to be treated with respect as such. He talks about humility uh, when you're in times of trouble, not only as, not only, not only for yourself, in a sense of reality if I can put it that way, but in in gaining, and persuade, gaining the support and persuading the stakeholders to join you on the journey of the turnaround that business. Anyways, I thought it was a great show. Episode 189, The Winning Momentum Podcast. You can look that up with David Cohen on YouTube. And everywhere you hear audio podcasts, which is what we're trying to build an audience in at this point. The YouTube audience is going pretty well, but you can look at um, Apple, Spotify, Google. What else? Amazon. There's one of the big ones that I'm missing. But I think on all major platforms, you can look at that. And next week, uh, I don't know. I don't know who we're going to show next week. Uh, we have a couple of we have a couple of guest shows that are in the can, as they say, as I think they say in this business. And so we'll see which one gets gets posted for you next week. So you'll just have to subscribe. And and uh, find out for yourselves. And today, today, we're going to be taking some audience questions that have been sent to me. I did not get to all of them, and in fact, I, I received a great one uh, today on my Instagram account. Uh, but the two that I'm going to deal with today, and by the way, on the Winning Momentum pod- Podcast, I think I've I've explained this to you before. I'm going to try and do one interview guest. It's not really an interview, it's more of a discussion, but one guest uh, as I did last week uh, with David Cohen. And then I'm going to try and do one myself where I can get into a bit more in-depth technical topic uh, that maybe isn't conducive to a guest type discussion and 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 rotate or alternate, I guess, back and forth between those two concepts and see how we do and make some decisions as this uh, as this platform, as this brand of podcast grows. And so today... We're going to work with two questions, uh, concepts thrown at me from listeners of the show, and that reminds me to encourage you: if you have ideas, if you want things uh, that you would like to be covered in depth or a specific guests, just just reach out to me. You can reach out to me in the comments on YouTube. Um, one of these individuals that put forward a question to me or a series of questions or a concept for me to discuss, does so privately by email. Sometimes people reach out to me by LinkedIn or on my Instagram account or on Twitter. So the ideas that for me to cover come from a number of different spots. So feel free if you would like me to discuss something and give you my thoughts on a particular Topic uh, related to, well, related to anything, doesn't matter what's related to. I'll just pick and choose the ones that I want to answer. So let's jump into the first one. We're going to talk. Uh, so the first question that I had today was about generally around the idea of hiring, uh, negotiating a raise, alignment of core competencies uh, between the employees, uh, between the specific employee and the company that that employee is working for. And the second, uh, Uh, Question concept that I was asked to cover today is on pricing a business for sale. How do you price a private business for sale? So I'm going to try to tackle both of those questions today. And I would say to you, the person that reached out to me to do cover due diligence in a merger and acquisition scenario, how they might go about approaching that. I love the topic. I will do so. I don't have time this episode. So Subscribe. Check back in a couple of weeks, and I think you will find that topic covered. All right, so let's jump into. Let's jump. Jo- I, I know that you're listening to this uh, early on a Tuesday morning. By the way, at uh, five a.m. Eastern, we release these now. So it seems a little weird that I'm drinking a scotch here at night, but it's been a crazy day. It's been a crazy week, and or month, even <laughs> or year, and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, eight 8.30 p.m. Uh, the night before the show's due to be released. And so I'm enjoying a scotch as we walk through it. So there was the pause if you're listening on the audio. And uh, all right, let's jump into it. Aligning core competencies between the employee and the company. I had an email uh, from a listener. I won't give you too much uh, details. Uh, but this person said they love the, the rebranding of the show to the Winning Momentum pod- podcast and thanking me for the videos. You're welcome. I'm I'm glad that you're such a loyal listener. I think that's terrific. And I had talked to, if you've been listening to the uh, Martini's with Scott podcast, uh, that show last year, before we did the rebrand, I think it was in December, we covered a question from this person who was working at a great job at a tech company uh, or a high growth company, let's put it that way and had been there. I forgot. I'm going to make up some of these facts, okay? So I, I apologize if I don't have it 100% right because I didn't go back to revisit that show to get my stats and my uh, my metrics exactly right. But the bottom line is this person is a professional. She's working at a high-growth company and, and had not been there very long. Let's call it nine months or was coming up on a one-year review and had determined... That the job that the person was hired for had materially shift shifted had materially shifted. So it had you know uh, the person was hired for this job over here, and then the company grew rapidly as a, as it was supposed to, and more needs became evident, and all of a sudden the job they were doing was a much more uh, complicated and difficult, and I think the important part of the story is more expensive job. Right, so that if that person had been hired for that role from day one, the the price tag would have been significantly different. And the and the question that's put to me was, well, how do you, how do you uh, ask for a raise of whatever, a hundred percent, right? It's not a ten percent raise, it's not a fifteen percent bump, it's not a one time bonus. It's so I need a significant raise. I need a fifty percent raise or a hundred percent raise, and how do I go about raising that? and And uh, negotiating that type of raise. And my advice, basically back at the time was you can't you can't ask for a raise of fifty percent or hundred. percent It doesn't even make any sense. So I, like what manager do you believe has that in the budget? right if you're If you're asking a direct supervisor to go back to whomever they report to and say, "I've got a good idea." We really need to retain this person. And so we're going to give that person double the salary. Yeah, no, I know. I know I just hired them nine months ago, but I'm going to give them double the salary now or 50% uh, raise. Uh, How do you think that makes that manager look? It makes them look grossly incompetent. It makes them uh, seem like they haven't sold the values of the organization uh, to that employee, it makes it seem like they haven't held the employee accountable, which I'm, I'm, you know, that may sound like a negative, but it's in fact a positive. That they haven't sold the values, they haven't held people accountable. Maybe they haven't demonstrated those values themselves as a supervisor. And so it just looks terrible. Nobody's going to go, if you came to me and I work for somebody else and reported to somebody else, which I don't, thank God, but if I did, and you came to me and said, hey, I want a fifty percent raise or a hundred I know you just hired me nine months ago but I need double the salary I'm not doing that I'm not doing that I'm just gonna take the hit I'm gonna lose you but I'm not gonna make myself look like an idiot so you can't negotiate that that was my opinion but here's what you could do you could deal with the truth and the truth is that you were hired nine months ago or twelve months ago remember remember this was my advice last December uh, to this person that you could you could frame this not as a raise, but as a, a mutual problem to be solved between you and your supervisor. You're on the same team and you need to solve the problem. You make it a joint problem, uh, together. And that's what the persuasion is. All right. And the joint problem is look at, I'm doing the job of, you know, I was hired to do this job. Now I'm not doing that job. Instead, I'm doing this greatly more value added job. And if you, if you go to the market to find somebody to fill this job, you're going to find that your grid is wrong, that you're paying the wrong amount. It's not, nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with my performance. I think I'm doing well, but it's nothing to do with that. It's that the company needs this position filled, and the, the grid and the pay scale that you have for this, for this particular position is way out of whack with the market. I went and talked to a recruiter, And not not to find another job, I'm here because I love the company, I love my position, Um, but I've gone to the market for for similar positions as the work that I'm doing right now, and here's the evidence. The evidence is it pays double, or pays 50%. Now, I don't necessarily expect you to get me there overnight, but that's what this job is worth, and I'm being paid half that right now, or I'm being paid three quarters of that right now, which is not your fault the job has changed again the job has changed because the company has changed so how do we work together to you know to get the job recognized for what it should be uh, should be and you give all the performance you give all of the evidence that you've reached from the market on that and you stress that it's not about your performance you haven't you're not twice as good as you were 9 months ago right when they were hired you're not being undervalued you're not being disrespected the job has changed and if you focus on that that's called taking the high road in persuasion. That's just, it's just taking a position that no reasonable person, person could argue against, right? If you've gone to the market and the job used to be this, and now the job is that, you've gone to the market and here's what people in that position get paid, that has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you and your performance and your professionalism and nothing to do with any of that, right? Everybody could, could agree that if they were to hire somebody, to do that job that's not you, they're going to be paid that double the amount, right? And that's what you need to focus on is making it a joint problem in such a high level, high road sort of way that nobody could possibly argue that that's a bad thing. Now, can they go and sell that to upper management? Um, maybe, maybe not, right? But that's because they may not have the budget for that position, but then uh, that would lead to uh, open up another discussion, Right. If you remove yourself from it, if you remove your ego from it and focus on the position, you're going to get a lot further. There's the context, there's the background. And so this person wrote to me and said that after watching the episode in December, I contacted a recruiter. That was a wake up call. He gave me the specific market info I needed, echoed my point, Scott's point here that my resignation wasn't emotional, it's black to white, what my experience was uh, worth. And so I'm taking from that that she resigned from this position. Yep, I ended up resigning due to value misalignment after five months. Um, they offered me a GC. So I think, I don't know what value misalignment means. I'd almost love to have a discussion with this person and dive into that a bit more because this email has a lot of that sort of language in it that makes you wonder what was really going on behind the scenes there or in her thought process. I think I could add a lot more value if I had more details on it, but um, um you know, it, it seems to me when someone says value misalignment, it really means that her superior was not buying into the fact that the job had also, that the job had shifted. It used to be this and now it's that. and, and, I I could see where that would happen, right? I I could see just because I've laid out for you or for anybody, the best play that you could possibly have in that situation, which is to remove yourself, remove your ego, remove your performance, focus on the objective nature that the job is different than what you hired me for. That doesn't mean that that's going to work. It's just your best bet. Right, I don't know what the percentages are or the odds are of that working, but it it's just your best bet. And the your supervisor could still say, "Well, shit, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to my supervisor and say that I hired somebody in the wrong position or that the job has changed and it's really double what I told them nine months or twelve months ago." I'm not gonna do that. And so, you know, it, it, that's what I'm reading between the lines here. I don't know if I'm right or not. Uh, they offered me a better job the company offered her a better job in an effort to keep her. I won't say what it was because that gives away too much personal information in my view. Um, but she did, wasn't digging the tone from the top and, and she chose to value herself, uh, financially and otherwise, uh, for what she deserved and she decided to leave. So good on her, good on having the strength to do that because it doesn't appear that she just quit and went to another position. Um, and and it does read, I, I'm trying to pick and choose from this email to not get too personal with it, but it does, it does read to me like, um, this person was going through some other changes in their life and, uh, forgive me if I've misread that, but, um, but this was part of just sort of clearing the deck and I, I just think that's awesome. And, and, uh, everybody needs to do that from time to time. She did mention that, uh, from an older episode way back, an episode of Martinis with Scott, um, that there was a reminder or there was a a commentary in there for me. And I, I, I I love this clip. I remember exactly where I took that from. It was from uh, the guy on CNBC, mad money, whose name is escaping me at the moment. You guys know who I'm talking about. The mad money guy. Anyways, there was a clip on YouTube. You can look it up. If you can think of his name, where he had been just slammed by Jon Stewart on the daily show back in the day. And it was just an attack. It was a blindside, unfair, egregious attack on this guy, um, as Jon Stewart would do from time to time for no particular reason. And um, and uh, he did a clip on YouTube about how he handled that situation. And the essence of it was, you know, his wife said, come home, which he did. Work on the tomatoes, <laughs> which he did. And, you know, you take the rest of the day off. But tomorrow you get the fuck up and you go to work. And he got up at, you know, he went through it. I got up at 4 in the morning. I went and did my workout. I read my my, uh, reports and analyst, he's a stock guy, he read his analyst reports. He did his show. And the best revenge is to get up and go to work. If you're mad, if you feel disrespected, uh, if you've been slighted, and this guy certainly was, Ah, uh, you get up and you go to work. That's the best revenge. and I always I just love that particular piece of advice because I think it's I think is exactly right. And the person in this email has has referred to that as a constant reminder uh, when she feels angry at the world. the revenge is getting back to work the next day and continuing to improve. I love it. I love that you're doing that. and thank you for sharing that. Um, since then, she's been interviewing with large companies um, and she's been, Here's something I want to talk about. Uh, focusing on core competencies rather than the technical skills in the ads. For example, she interviewed with one company and they asked if they if she could do that. And she said uh, she didn't know anything about that. But she, instead of answering that question, she sold her core competencies. And I won't disclose her profession or what she does. So I'm just kind of dancing around this point. Uh, but she's done work that's related to the thing that she didn't, she's never done before, and that that company was specifically
1: uh,
0: specifically referring to. And what did I think about that? And will you please comment on this in an episode? Whether you've hired someone whose core competencies you believe in, who do not have the technical experience, and still excelled in the role. All right, let me tell you something. This is a long way to get to a direct answer about this issue. If I have a problem in a company and I'm hiring somebody, okay, and look at I work in mid-market and smaller companies, I work in high growth companies, I work in troubled companies. We don't have very often in companies of that size, we're not Apple, we're not Google, we're not IBM or GM or Ford. You tell them in the automotive business these days. We don't, we don't have, we don't have set jobs with really defined job descriptions if you're entrepreneurial it's not really the way it works it's kind of a i mean you have a job description you have a job you have a um you have a title but and and you're supposed to do that but you're also all hands on deck is often the the teamwork nature of the values and but if I'm trying to, if I have a specific problem and I think, well, I just need to hire somebody for that role, then I put it right in the job description. I need this person to do that. All right. This is specifically what I need. I just hired a general manager of a hemp processing facility that I am president of in Colorado. And a general manager is basically my right-hand man, even though it's women, on the ground and I need to be able to trust and rely on this person. And a general manager does everything. Does everything that a you know a um, a president or a VP ops uh, would be doing. Well, more of a president because there's a financial aspect and there's a marketing aspect as well. But when I write the job description, I put as bullet points, you know, experience required or able to handle the really specific things that are pissing me off that I need to have done from that job, right? And so for you to come in and tell me that you can't do that, those specific bullet points, well, that's not helpful to me. It's not helpful to me. You have to cover that. And I don't want to get too deep into who you are and what profession you're in because I don't think that's fair and it's not the nature of the email that you've sent to me. But you know who you are and the the example that you put forward what you could have said was, no, I've never done that specifically, but I've, I, I've looked at what that is. It's not brain surgery, and I've done 800 other things that are exactly similar, and not that, but 800 other things that are really similar, and I have 100% confidence that I can cover this off for you. They didn't put it in a job description, in a posting on Indeed. They didn't put that requirement in because they didn't think they needed it, And they're trying to hire something different, they put it in because they need it. And again, this comes back to persuasion and it comes back to pacing and leading. You can't just bait and switch. You can't just not talk about what's important to them. And what's important to them is the item that they put in the job posting, you know, on a deed, for example. So you don't have to have the experience. I agree with you. Core competencies can get you around that, but you have to be able to do the job that they need you to do. That's really important, particularly if it's a stress in their life. And so I would have thought the best thing, you know, you get this from an email, who the hell knows if I'm reading this properly or not. So I'm trying to approach that with a bit of humility for you. But I would have thought that the right answer was, no, I don't have particular experience in that directly, but I have all sorts of other experience that is related I have researched what you're talking about. I've talked to professional colleagues of mine. It's super easy. I have the templates. I've done related work. This isn't going to be an issue. I'm the person for that job. Now your question to me was really not that. It was, have I hired somebody with core competencies that I believed in who did not have the technical experience directly what I'm trying to hire again, If I said I'm trying to hire somebody to do something, it's because I'm trying to hire somebody to do something. But the answer to your question is yes. In the process of doing that, I have hired uh, people that really have no hope in hell of fulfilling the job that I'm trying to hire for. But in the course of doing that, I like them a lot. I like their values. I like uh, their salesmanship. They twigged another role for me that I could put them into. And so I've hired them, but I've hired them as well. I didn't hire them to do the job that they said they couldn't do. I hired somebody else who said they could do that job. I hired them for something else, which is complete like hit and miss luck of the draw from the applicant's perspective, right? Um, but I'll give you an example. Um, and, and Well, I'll give you an example of, of uh, someone I hired who didn't have the skills and directly, but had related core competencies. I was, a number of years ago, looking to hire somebody as an analyst, as an investment banking analyst, and associate, a first-year, a first-year investment banking anyways, out of school. And one of the things I was looking for was some technical skills because we were trying to get a CRM, a um uh customer relationship management piece of soft, software salesforce it was just just it's just so fucking god awful salesforce if you if you don't have a technical person if you're a mid-market smaller company and you can't figure out these widgets and it's just you know it becomes a full-time job just to manage this database and so i wanted somebody who had technical skills who could jump in and help with that and i met this person and she had so much going for her. She was just like the shining light of uh, karma. Uh, no, that's not the right her, her um aura, a shining mm-hmm. light of aura. She was just a amazing, positive, um, happy, smart, super smart, intelligent person who had zero chance of succeeding in an investment banking role But when we got to the Salesforce discussion, honestly, the only the only reason I continued on with the interview for the past, you know, the first 30 seconds is she just seemed like a really nice person and was enthusiastic and positive And i thought, like, you know, she'd be a great fit with the values of our company. And so, um, so just like I said, you could, you could do, uh, in future interviews, she said, no, I've never worked with that Salesforce. I had no idea what it was, but last night, Last night, I, uh, I YouTubed a couple of videos on this, and then I jumped on the program, and I was able to rewrite some of the you know widget code to work a little bit better, and blah 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 blah. I'm, I'm just kind of making up terms at this point because I'm outside my comfort zone. But the bottom line is, she turned herself she demonstrated she demonstrated that her core competencies were applicable to the problem one of the problems that I had. So what did I do? I created a job for this person. I hired an investment banker because I needed an investment banker, but I also created a job for this person. And we had a good couple of year run, as I recall. Um, and I became a believer in the hybrid degree of uh, commerce and IT, which is what this person had come from. And, um, uh, it was a great fit. So there's an example. There's an example where I looked at this person's core competencies and made up a role, and made up a role to fit that person into my organization. And it worked well for a while. But if you're the applicant, you can't rely on that. I mean, that's just statistically rarely going to happen. Okay. Your better bet is to do what she also did, which is to say, no, I I haven't worked on that specific issue in the past, but I did research it. I figured it out in about two seconds because my core competencies apply to that. Here's what I learned about it. And that's just going to put you ahead. So that's my thinking on that. I hope that it mounts. uh, I hope that it um, helps. And the reason I said the word mount is had I been better prepared and didn't have such a long day, I would have a ladder mount in my hand. Have you seen a yellow ladder mount from Roofers World? Do you remember the last time that you climbed an extension ladder? Maybe you needed to rescue a lost toy from a roof, had to paint the trim around the window or clean the gutters. I'm terrified of heights. I don't know about you. I hate going up. Ladders, they're unstable. It seems unsafe. There's an ungodly, an ungodly number of um, accidents in the U.S. every year. People end up in the hospital for um, ladder falls just at their home. You don't have to be a roofer. You don't have to be a painter. You could just be cleaning the gutters or putting up the Christmas lights. It's a disaster. Um, so, you know, the routine, you strategically fit try to find the best place to position the ladder and you still end up scratching or denting your gutter. And when you finally get the courage to go up, you grip the ladder tight and you pray that it doesn't wiggle. You try desperately to push the thoughts of falling out of your head. Yeah, that's me. That's the old way of climbing a ladder. Now you can lose a lot, use a ladder mount. And again, I should have had this in my hand for you if I was more professional. Picture a piece of plastic, Um, I'm looking at it right now. Let's call it two feet wide and it sits on the gutter and then your ladder sits on that and it's stabilized. It's a pretty cool thing. You put it up with a a wooden pole for like a, a shovel handle or something like that. And, um, easy peasy to use, relatively cheap and, uh, it, and it protects your gutter. So the ladder doesn't slide. It doesn't wiggle. It's stabilized at the top, protects your gutter. And anybody, any house that owns a ladder should own a ladder mount. Really, you should. Like for this amount of money, why are you not owning a ladder mount? It just makes no sense. You'll notice the difference as soon as you begin to climb. Ladder mount provides a stable base for your ladder, giving you the confidence to climb safely. Check it out. Go to roofersworld.com, R-O-O-F-E-R-S, world, W-O-R-L-D.com or roofersworldstore.com or Ask for it at any of your do-it-yourself stores, um, Home Depot would be a great example of that. Okay. But get it online. It's a best, better thing to do. Let's move on to the next topic. What is a business worth? Was the question? How do you price a business for sale, a private business for sale? Those of you that have listened to the show for a while, will know that I I just, almost every episode, almost every episode, I harp on the idea that 90% of businesses fail. 90% of new businesses fail. And they fail in the sense that they never, ever pay their owner a living wage. They just never pay a living wage to the entrepreneur, to the founder of the business, ever. Okay, so that's failure and ninety percent failure rate. It's an astonishing number and everybody's out trying to be an entrepreneur an entrepreneur these days, not have a job, have their freedom, get their bag and <laughs> and and nobody ever breaks these stats to them and that that's sort of the whole reason that I do the winning momentum podcast is to is to provide some insight and strategies and techniques to be better educated at business, to be more aware of what you're getting into and to have a higher success rate at the end of the day. Right, So you've got 10% of businesses that are able of new businesses that will ultimately be able to pay their founder a living wage and 90% of them will not, which is my definition of failure. That's the difference between my stat, the 90% and some other lower stats that you may have heard. Like you've all heard the stat that 50% of businesses uh, fail in the first three years. Okay. Well, what the hell does fail mean? Like who decided, does that mean file bankruptcy? What exactly does that mean? How is that objective? And so just beware when you hear these stats, the point of it is it's horrendous. It's a really difficult job to make a success at a business and very few are able to pull it off. And so only 10% can pay themselves a living wage, but of that 10%, 8% or 80% of the 10, if you want to put it that way, um, never create any wealth. So yes, they can make a paycheck for themselves. They're not working for the man, so to speak. Um they're not building a career. They have their freedom. They're running a well, let's pick on roofing. We're, they're running a roofing company. They're a contractor. They're running a landscape company. Um something in the trades obviously is what I'm focusing on here, but it could be a tech business, it could be a dropship business, it could be anything. It could be anything. They're running that business and they're able to make a decent living. They can buy a house. If they're successful, they can pay. Uh, they can buy food, they can put their kids through school, and they live a decent life, maybe even a wealthy life, moderately wealthy wealthy life from that paycheck. But they don't build wealth. They don't build transferable wealth. They can't, in the end, sell their business to a third party and get a tremendous amount of value out of that to get that hundred million dollar payday or the ten million dollar payday. Or the five million, like whatever that number is, it doesn't matter; they don't create life changing wealth, and so so that leaves you with two percent of new businesses that will actually do that right so so ten percent you'll be able to will be able to supply a paycheck to its founder, and then two percent will actually provide some wealth for its founder, astonishing low ads, odds, and so, what can I do in the winning momentum? podcast content and the winning momentum content that's on my website at thescottsinclair.com and the blog posts that I write and everything that I try to do uh, for you. What can I do to get you into that 2% to try to help you understand what needs to happen for you to create wealth in the sale of your business and just generally to improve those odds? Well, one thing I could do is explain to you how to price a business for sale or or what an equation might be for that, and how businesses are valued. And so I like to talk about that sometimes for that very reason, because, you know, forewarned is, uh, what's that expression? Forewarned is, uh, anyways, I have no idea. Uh, But if you know what the hell you're talking about, you have a better shot at accomplishing uh, that, right? Okay, so I did a show, I think a few episodes ago, on enterprise value, which is one definition of value. And or I guess I should say one metric of value. And um, I talked about the idea that you ought to be including in your annual business plan the metrics that drive your enterprise value. You ought to measure them over time, and you ought to create systems to improve those, those metrics. So for example, if, if one of the drivers of the valuation of your business is contribution margin, right, direct, uh, so that's, that's uh, revenue revenue, less your variable costs or divided by your variable costs. Okay. So those are, that's your contribution. So for every unit that I sell, I have X dollars of contribution margin that I can use to pay my overheads and my profits, right? That's what a contribution margin is. There's a million other episodes on that. And we will be talking about it uh, forever on this content because, uh, because on this podcast, because it's really, really important. But if that's a metric, then you need to plan for that you need to track it and you need to find a way to improve your contribution margin over time, right? So that was an example of that with enterprise value. Well, you know, you need to, if you want to be able to sell your business, you need to know what a business is worth. And when you ask what a business is worth, then the next logical question might be, well, to who, to who, right? What's it worth to who? Because it could be worth something to you, but it might be worth a whole different number to me, and I'm willing to bet that that number is a lot less than it is to you, right? So, it's worth to who, and for what purpose? Why am I doing evaluation, right? And so, let's start there. What is the difference between fair market value and market value? And I want you, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as someone who wants to build a business and create some wealth for yourself, I want you to understand the difference from that, the perspective of what a business valuator how how and I have been a professional business valuator in my past life. You know, how might we think about that? And so here's here's some thoughts for you. Focus on the reason to value a business. And, and the purpose of this question was to value a business or to price a business was the word that was used. And those are very different things, by the way. Um, but to price a business or value a business for purchase and sale. In other words, someone's trying to sell the business and another person's trying to buy the business. And that is market value, right? And again, we're talking about private companies here. We're not talking about public companies where their stocks trade on a market. And every day, uh, you can look at the newspaper, if this was uh, 50 years ago, or you can look on your online trading site right now and you can see the quote. You can see the last trade. You can see the bid ask. um, You can see what market value is on that stock, but you can't do that in a private company, right? And so... You need to understand what market value is, um, and, and part of market value is fair market value. You know, oh, okay, well, that's confusing. Well, let's talk about some other reasons that you might value a business, and then we're going to come back to that. How about for tax planning? Um, those of you that lead more complicated lives, and you're not just you know doing your taxes with a pay slip from your employer, if you start to have a successful business and you start thinking, geez, what should I be doing to make this the most tax efficient business? If I want to sell it later, how do I structure my fares? How do I structure my ownership? And you go off and you talk to a tax accountant about this sort of thing. If you're thinking about multi-generations, right? So you're, you're in an owner-manager situation and you want to leave this business to your kids 10 years from now. Or whatever, you need to start planning for that up front. And ultimately, your tax account, your accountant is going to say something like, well, you need to do a freeze and a, ro- a value freeze and a rollover. Okay. So we need to switch it up into this tra- tax structure. You don't need to worry about the, what that stuff is. But the important part, the important part is you need to value the business to do it. You need to value the business to do it. Well, is that a market value? No, because there's no transaction, there's no buyer, there's no seller. So what the hell is it? It's fair market value okay? And fair market value is a what we would call in the trade a notional valuation. It is a valuation of a business in the absence of a trade. It's completely theoretical, just completely theoretical. So tax planning valuations are fair market value based. Why else would you do a business valuation? Well, how about for bonus calculation? You've said to your management team, look at If you were the CEO of a public company, I would give you a bunch of stock options and the stock would go from $10 to $1,000 and you would get to participate in that and become a billionaire because you had a bunch of stock options and they became vested and then you, you know, you struck on the, on the options and everything was great and you became rich and famous, right? Well, you can't do that in a private company because there is no market. You can issue options, but... You know, what are they going to do with them? They're going to buy a piece of a private company. It's then illiquid, meaning you can't sell it, right? And the whole valuation thing is an issue because it's not day-to-day like it is in a public company. So it kind of sucks. Well, one thing people do is they try to create that same scenario synthetically, and they try to do it through a a bonus structure often. And if the bonus structure is not just earnings-based, like our EBITDA went up this year, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, uh, amortization, right? Sometimes it's tied to value. It's tied to value. And you see that in funds all the time, for example. Um, and I used to personally do uh, valuations for fund manager bonuses when I was a youngster at the accounting firm. And um, so I've seen that firsthand. I've done uh, uh, hundreds of those. <laughs> and those are fair market value based because there's no trade. There's no trade. Again, there's no mark market that you can mark your your calculations to it's a notional valuation what else how about for family law what if you're getting divorced you've got a house and you've got a business and you've got you know your IRA you've got some savings whatever you've got right well we know what the house is worth we can call an appraiser and they can tell us with relative certainty what that house is worth but what is your roofing business worth what is that worth right? Well, again, there's no market, there's no buyer, there's no seller. So that is a notional valuation, a hypothetical valuation. It's a fair market value valuation. Securities matters. Uh, fairness opinions um, often are FMV based fair market value based. I won't bore you with some of the details of that. Oppression remedies would be another example of a fair value or fair market value. And again, a lot of these Valuation needs stem from uh, law, securities law, family law, corporate law, with respect to oppressions, tax law, and those law, those laws or the or the uh, common law that surrounds them often define what value means, and then the valuator. Uh, working within that area would, you know, adhere to that definition of value. But that's I, I just wanted you to understand maybe more than you need to what a what fair market value is as compared to market value. Okay. <clears throat> because market value is sort of today and you can trade it. That's what the market is at. In a private business, you have no idea what market value is. You never know what market value is. You do it at a public company. But there is no market like right now today that's pricing in real time your private business for you and and don't forget valuation is at a point in time valuation isn't like eh this year I think my business is worth X valuation is you know as at April seventh end of business I'm putting a number on this business or a range of numbers on this business okay and and that's what fair market value is as opposed to market value. In a private business, there is no market. All right. So what is fair market value by definition? It's the highest price available in an open and unrestricted market uh, between informed and prudent parties uh, acting reasonably under no compulsion to act and acting within uh, acting at arm's length expressed in terms of money and money's worth. Okay, I can do that better. A highest price available in an open and unrestricted market between informed and prudent parties under no compulsion to act, acting at arm's length and expressed in terms of money and money's worth. That is uh, an old-school definition of fair market value. And um, and let's just go through that piece by, piece by piece. So the first thing is that it's the highest price available. Well, highest price for what? What is it that you're valuing? And this is one of the reasons I want you to understand what fair market value is before I tell you how to price your business for sale or don't price your business for sale at all. Um, Because if you go to like for a whole bunch of reasons, just to understand the concepts of valuation, but also if you go to a business valuator and you say, I want to sell my business, can you value my business for me? That valuator, if it's not me, if that person is not me, is going to say, Sure write me a check for uh, tens of thousands of dollars and I will prepare this report for you that every single purchaser will then ignore and that you are going to overly rely on because you don't understand that there's a difference between what a business valuator does, which is fair market value where there is no market and what a purchaser does. It's a whole different thing. And what a purchaser does is includes a bit of the fair market value but if I'm a buyer and you show me a report, I don't care. I might flip through it because it gives me some insight to the business that I otherwise didn't have, but I don't care what the number is on that, on that report because it's really not relevant to me. I'm going to do my own due diligence on that. So as a seller, as an entrepreneur, you just need to understand the fundamentals of valuation so you have a better shot of making some wealth out of your business. <clears throat> All right, so it's the highest price available. Highest price available Well, for what? Okay. Well, what you're valuing is what you're selling. And if you're selling your shares, then you want the highest price available for your common shares and the valuation needs to relate to the common shares. It doesn't need to, in other words, it shouldn't be enterprise value, which relates to the sum of your assets. And with those assets, you then need to pay your debt, for example. Okay. Um, so if you're focusing on your shares, then value your shares. And the definition of fair market value is that you take the highest price available. In other words, it's not a midpoint. It's not the lowest point. It's not some, you know, outrageous outlier of, of valuation. It's the highest price available in an open and unrestricted market. What does that mean? Well, it means that it, it replicates market value, but not at a specific point in time, right? So, you think stock markets can jump around all over the place, um, but the definition of fair market value assumes that you just have a, a normal market and, and people are paying for what we call intrinsic value, um, which is sort of the same thing as fair market value very often. And intrinsic value is always, valuation is always the sum of the future cash that you can put in your pocket discounted to today for time and for risk. That's what value is. Technically speaking, the future cash not past, not the past cash. It's the future cash. It's not the there's not the money the last guy put in his pocket. It's the money you put in your pocket in the future, what you expect to put in your pocket discounted to today. So for time and for risk. Okay. Um, It's between informed, prudent parties, informed and prudent parties under no compulsion to act. So, you know, if you're valuing a business in a notional market without a transaction, um, you have to assume that people aren't idiots. That that they, they're informed, uh, they're prudent, they don't take undue risk, uh, they're not being coerced by a partner or somebody else to to act to buy or to sell, right? And so you assume they're not coerced and they're not idiots. Basically, makes sense, and they're acting at arm's length. So this is not a a father rolling it to a son, a daughter selling it, uh, sorry, a, a mother selling it to a daughter, what have you, um, or a brother, like whatever. People that are related, um, this definition assumes, assumes that that's not what's going on, that these people are what we call at arm's length, and that it's expressed in money or money's worth. Now, that's an odd thing, you think. Why would the definition say that it's expressed in money's and money's worth? Well, the answer is because often, often you pay for a business in something other than cash, all right? So if I buy your business, and you say your business is worth $10 million, and I say, cool, here's $10 million worth of stock, you say, awesome, I got $10 million, right? Well, what's my stock worth? You've missed that point. I didn't... Maybe my stock's worth nothing, and I just called it $10 million. That happens all the time. What if I said, I'll pay you $10 million. I'm going to do it in debt, which means I owe you $10 million, and I'm going to pay it five years from now. I'm not going to pay you any interest on it because, you know, we're struggling to cash flow. And so is that piece of debt, is that $10 million that I owe you, is that worth $10 million, or is it worth something less? And so you get into these relative valuations, and that's why the definition of fair market value is that it is expressed in money or money's worth because if it's not paid for in cash, you need the value, the consideration that you receive for the deal, right? That makes sense. I always love the story, I've told this before, I believe, of the um, little girl who uh, was sitting on the side of the street and a businessman walks by, that's a terribly sexist thing to say. Let's say a businesswoman walks by and a little boy sitting on the side of the street and um has dog, his little puppy dog and a for sale sign. And uh the woman stops and says, uh, "Hey kid, you're selling your you're selling your puppy dog. He's so cute." And the and the kid says, "Yep, I have to sell my dog. It's really sad. I love him so much, but I'm going to sell him and I'm going to get a million dollars for him." And the woman says, you know, who's an accountant and uh, in the finance business? She says, uh, you know, no dog's worth. The value of a dog is not a million dollars. And so I wish you luck. I wish, I wish, you, wish you luck with that, but you're not going to get a million dollars for your dog. And then she's walking home. She's walking home later after work, and the same kid is sitting there, and he's got two cats. And she says, what happened to the dog? He says, I sold him. I had to sell my dog. I told you that. I got these two cats that are worth a half a million dollars each. Relative valuation expressed in money or money's worth, you need to value the consideration that you receive. So that is fair market value. I think that's, you know, way too in depth already, but I, I just need you, if you're gonna understand the valuation of business, you need to understand you need to understand what fair market value is. Now, let's talk about market price, okay, which is really where you're heading. What is the price that I can get for my business? You know, market price in a public company as we've said a million times before on this episode, as I've said before on this episode a million times, is, is a whole different story. You get, you get to look right now on your online banking or your trading platform, and you can see the price of that particular stock, right? You can see that Twitter jumped up today as I'm recording this uh, earlier today, I think it was this morning, jumped up 25% on the news that Elon Musk bought uh, whatever, nine, nine and a half percent, 9.4% of Twitter. And so the stock jumped up. Now, why? What are the fundamentals of Twitter that changed 25% to the good today versus yesterday? Did the user base go up 25%? No. Did the expected cash flow go up 25%? Probably not, right? Um, What is it that changed by 25% today versus yesterday? And the only answer is the speculation that Everything Elon Musk does is great and you want to be involved with it. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. And so that just shows you, I think, the fragility of market prices. They're all over the place. Now, over the long term, they normalize to where they ought to be. I mean, that's the the hypothesis, you know, with free markets is that at the end of the day, you get the right answer, but but from from, you know, point to point at any time you see these wild uh, volatility and shifts in market price and markets can be over the place, all over the place. You don't see that with fair market value because there is no market, right? Fair market value is a much more stable thing. And then, and in private companies, you have the opposite problem. You just don't, you just don't have a market. And so how might we think, how might we think about how to price or the valuation of a, of a private business that is for sale, not just in a notional market, but actually where we want to have a transaction. Well, here's a formula for you. I want you to consider this formula that the maximum price in the sale of your business, the maximum price is equal to intrinsic value plus the value of anticipated synergies minus transaction costs. The maximum price available to you in the sale of your business is intrinsic value plus the value of anticipated synergies minus transaction costs. All right, let's break that down a little bit. What is intrinsic value? Well, intrinsic value, in a sense, uh, at least for this discussion, is, is fair market value, which is why we spent so much time on that. Okay, and so there's all sorts of ways that you can calculate Intrinsic value or fair market value. And I know for you evaluators that are listening, what I'm saying is technically not accurate. There's all sorts of discounts on a fair market value that maybe wouldn't apply an intrinsic value and blah, blah, blah. But that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter for the point of this discussion. Okay. The point of this discussion is that you calculate the value of your business, um, the intrinsic value of your business in the absence of a transaction, just like fair market value. So let's do an example. And we're going to do a, a company that's in a traditional industry, has maintainable revenue of, say, 25 million. And if you're a small business of a million dollars or 2.5 million dollars, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're doing 250 million dollars or 2.5 billion. It doesn't matter. I'm just making up numbers here, okay, for the sake of it. So uh, for sake of the example. So 25 million in revenue, say you have five million in earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation. And amortization, which is, you know, always a good metric or a, or a way to track the profitability of your business. And we won't get into the details of why we use that sort of net profit, but it, it's an often used metric. And if you're in business, you've probably heard of EBITDA. And you, you look at comparable transactions, which is something a valuator would do if they're doing fair market value. They would look at your industry, say you're in the roofing business, and they would look at actual transactions that are reported of one roofing company selling to another roofing company or a roofing company selling to a private equity fund, some sort of actual transaction. And they would back into the, they would back into what the implied multiple was, um, on the, on the EBITDA. Okay. And you know, there's sophisticated databases for that. Uh, our firm pays just a ton of money to keep up with those databases. And let's say you do your research and for this company that does 5 million of what we call maintainable EBITDA, which means, you know, every year in the future is going to be 5 million of EBITDA and the market tells us that there's an eight times multiple is appropriate for that, okay? And just assume this company has no debt to make our life simple. And so you've got $5 million of EBITDA, you have an eight times multiple, five times eight is $40 million valuation. Fair market value because there's no debt. Intrinsic value because there's no debt. You've got this $40 million, okay? Now, remember, the highest price available to you is equal to intrinsic value plus anticipated synergies minus transaction costs. Well, this is the intrinsic value part. We've come up with $40 million. Now, what, what in my example, would you negotiate over there? Well, you would have to agree on the multiple. Should it be eight? Should it be six? Should it be Nine? right? You're going to fight over that multiple and you're going to fight over what maintainable EBITDA is in that particular situation. All right. Because someone's going to come back to you and say, well, yeah, you did 5 million this year, but last year you did 4.5 or 4. And I think, you know, this year was an aberration. You're not going to do 5 next year. You're going to go back to four, and four times eight is $32 million, not $40 million and blah, 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 right? So you're going to have that argument and that fight. And so that's what you would negotiate over to arrive at the intrinsic value. And then you get to the next part. So the highest price available to you is intrinsic value plus anticipated synergies minus transaction costs. Well, what is a synergy? Well, if you are a roofing company, large roofing company, let's make this uh, more practical. So let's say you're a manufacturing company and you're buying another manufacturing company that has this 25 million in revenue and, and 5 million in EBITDA. And as the purchaser, you figure out, Hey, if I buy these people and I merge them buy this business and merge it with my business, I can get rid of five salaries at a hundred grand each. I can get rid of a controller because I don't need two controllers. I can get rid of a CFO. I don't need two CFOs. I don't need two plant managers. Whatever. Um, so th- you get rid of five salaries uh, at hundred thousand each. as you get rid of five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So now, now you you've moved your maintainable EBITDA from you bought a business that was doing five million in EBITDA, but now it's doing five point five million in EBITDA, and you apply because you save five hundred thousand dollars in costs, right? And so you apply the eight times multiple to that. Um, and you come up with $44 million rather than $40 million. So intrinsic value was $40 million, assuming we all agree on, on those numbers. Um, with the synergies, the business is now worth $44 million. Okay, that makes sense? So there's a $4 million bump in value because you got rid of these five people at hundred dollars a pop or $500,000. And in the mergers and acquisitions game synergies are everything that's where the great value is right so you think about i mean that's an old school manufacturing company that i just gave you an example of what if what if you're a software company what if you're in the gig economy i used to do a ton of uh, software deals back in the 90s i know i'm dating myself substantially uh, you see a lot of software deals and you'd, you'd have a small company doing a million in revenue, $2 million in revenue, but they had a really cool technology and some interesting people. Well, what was that software worth to me as a financial purchaser, not a strategic purchaser, but what was it worth to me? Well, it wasn't worth very much. It was worth the million dollars of revenue at the margins of whatever, 90% less the overheads so probably worth nothing. What was that software worth to Microsoft if they could integrate it into their package with all their users and charge a bunch of money for it? Well, it could be worth billions, right? Because they had the distribution channel for it. What would what would Uber pay or somebody in the gig economy, uh, economy with a bunch of users on their app? What would they pay to be able to push more product through that built-in distribution channel? Well, a lot more than you could afford to pay for it, right? Um, What about companies that, you know, similarly, those are two examples of selling more because of distribution. And there's lots of other examples you can think of for synergies of cutting costs, like removing real estate footprints. Uh, You know, often you don't need two head offices. You could just get, you know, rid of one, rid of that lease and save some expense and move into another. So those are examples of synergies. And they're really, really important in the M&A game when you're thinking about selling your business, when you're thinking about value when you're thinking of buying a business but we gave you an example of this uh, $4 million of extra value from cutting some costs right from the synergy of that 40 million to 44 million well who who gets that extra 4 million the seller well let's we'll start with the buyer if if your business the intrinsic value is worth 40 million why would I want to pay you 44 million because I get to cut some costs I don't want to do that I want to pay you $40 million. I'm going to fight to the death over that issue. I'm not going to pay you a cent over the value of the business that I'm buying, the $40 million. Not going to pay more for it, okay? Um, that's going to be my position. And your position is going to be that I'm going to make a bunch more money than $5 million, in fact, uh, per year off of this thing, the EBITDA. In fact, I'm going to make 5.5 in EBITDA every year off of this business, and I ought to be paying you for that privilege or I will be, you know, sharing in some of that for the privilege. And it becomes this power struggle and the negotiation becomes about who's going to, who's going to share or pay for those synergies. Like who's going to benefit from the synergies, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that leads me to a extraordinarily long-winded answer to the question which was, just to remind you all, the question was, you know, how do you think about the value of your business when you're trying to sell it or how do you price a business for sale? And and now that you have some concept of the meaning of value, the difficulties with valuation in a private business, this formula that the maximum you could possibly hope to get is the sum of the intrinsic value plus the value of the anticipated synergies minus your transaction costs, which we didn't really talk about, but they should be self-explanatory. But but how do you negotiate for those synergies? Because at the end of the day, that just comes down to a negotiation. Enter, enter, duh, duh, oh wait, I can do this. Enter boom. Did that work? Give me a little drum shot on that. Or maybe it's more magic, love playing with the roadcaster here, enter the M&A process. So what the hell does that mean? How do you sell a business? If you have a business that you want to sell and your neighbor's in the exact same business, do you go to your neighbor and say, eh, I was thinking about selling, or your neighbor comes to you and says, hey, I was thinking about buying, and you have a discussion, and you do a deal, and and you argue over these uh, the value of these synergies that we've described and you come at a number and everybody's happy and walk away. Is that the way this works? Do You think that's how that works? I mean, it could. It could, right? <clears throat> but does that put you in your best negotiating position? How long does that transaction take with your neighbor? Is it done a uh, handshake over a couple of beers tonight? Or does that drag out for years? Like, I don't know. I want to go think about it. I got to talk to my wife. You got to talk to your wife. Uh, I talk to my husband, whatever the, you know, there's always a reason to not sell and to not buy. Let's deal with it next month. Ah, my audit's not done. I need to wait till the numbers are in, whatever, <laughs> whatever the issue is to drag it out. If you want to sell a business, start an M&A process. What is an M&A process? I'm going to describe to you what we do as investment bankers when we're selling a company. Number one, we don't set a price ever so your answer to your question is how you set a price for your business. Well, you don't. Okay. You let the market come back and tell you, and you do that in the spirit of competition and you do the competition through an M and a sales process. So here's what we do. You want me to sell your business for you. We create a database. We create a database of 500 to 600, at least strategic purchasers, people that are in the same business. Um, or a related business or a synergistic business with the business that you're in. And I know what you're all saying. Every one of you business owners out there is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. My business is unique. My business is unique. You're not going to find anybody who can understand my business and be synergistic. Well, that's crap. There's always synergistic buyers. And when there's not synergistic buyers, um, there's financial buyers, right? So we put together a database, and then you in a cold calling sense, you send to that database what's called the teaser letter, which is a one page, you know, couple of paragraphs. Uh, we represent a business. It's on my letterhead, Sinclair Range. We represent a business, it's trying to sell. Here's some cool stuff about that business. If you want to know more, contact me. Okay. And so the name of the business is not dropped, the geography is not dropped. Um you give a bit of information to entice somebody and then uh, but not enough to you know give away all the information that the business is trying to sell itself, so the employees get stressed about it and so that's called a teaser letter, and you in a cold calling sense, you flip it out to this whole database of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and and then you follow that up with phone calls and you're going to get Uh, You know, 10 or 20 or 50, depending on the industry, interested parties, you sign non-disclosures with them. And then you send them the quote unquote package, which is called in my business, a confidential information memorandum, a CIM. And that's sort of the 10, 15 pages. People like to do it as a deck. Uh, Depends on the business. You could do it as a deck. You could do it as a written document. And you send that out and you build the data room, right? So the electronic data room so people can do due do diligence. But in that SIM, in the CIM, the Confidential Information Memorandum, you outline a process. Here's what we're doing. Um, you get to review this for two weeks. Um, at the end of that, I want an LOI from you. And I'm going to select the parties from that letter of intent that have access to the data room. And then you're going to have access to the data room for a month. And then I want binding offers or whatever. Whatever the process is, and the whole point, the whole point of the formalization is you communicate to the market that this is real and it's happening now. Okay. We're not screwing around. We're selling the business. This is real and it's happening now. And there's competition. You need to put your best foot forward, prospective purchaser. And what do prospective purchasers do when they're in a competition? and they have to put their best foot forward, they say to themselves, I could buy that business. The intrinsic value of that business is $40 million. That's the math we all agreed on, but I don't know if that's gonna win this bid process. And to me, it's worth $44 million. So maybe I should up my bid from 40 to 42. Maybe I should give up some of the value of that synergy and I should do it up front to get myself in the door. And then someone who's an investment banker running that process can now have a negotiation starting from a higher point and stressing the fact that there is a competition uh, for this business. That's what an M&A process is always. That's what an M&A process is. And the whole, there's a bunch of benefits, but the primary ones are it creates it creates a mechanism for a purchaser to want to transfer some of the value of that future synergy to the vendor. That's what it's for. And that's why I spent half an hour telling you (laughs) what fair market value was, and this purchase price equation. Because at the end of the day, the answer to your question is don't. Do not ask a price for your business. Instead, enter into a professionally managed process um, and let the market tell you what it's worth in that process. By the way, at the end of the day, you could just say, "No, fuck it, I'm not selling my business for that price." You can all just get lost, right? You could do that. Pay me a break fee if I'm the one selling your business. Pay your investment banker, uh, you know, a professional fee for the time. But um, you know, nobody forces you into this. But the right thing to do is to enter the process to communicate to the market that this is real. It's happening. It's happening now. There's a timeline. Come with your best foot forward so you can capture the value of some of those synergies. And that's what I would do. That's how I would always handle that situation. Uh, what else do we have here? I think that was it. That was it on that point. And I'm running a little bit over time. Hey, have you checked out the ScottSinclair.com? T H E S C O T T S I N C L A I R.com. That is my new personal branded website. There's a bunch of content going out on that. I do know that some of you have been registering and we didn't have the we didn't have the uh, backend set up properly so that you could be notified so that we would be notified when someone uh, was registered and so that that the people that registered got the mailer that they were supposed to get out of that. so we're working on that. We should have that fixed in the next couple of days. so the pains of a the pains of a new website. But uh, go check it out, thescottsinclair.com. And uh, that's me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Winning Momentum podcast. We'll be back with a special guest next week. Hit subscribe. You can follow us on YouTube, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon. Follow us, subscribe. Check me out on Instagram, uh, Twitter. I think those are the main platforms. You can look up my company at Sinclair Range. And as I said at the beginning, please, please send me some suggestions. What do you want to, uh, you know, what questions do you want answered? Um, Where would you like this content to go to be more valuable to you? Obviously, I have my pillars that I need to talk about or want to talk about that I think are important, but I'm always happy to address these questions. And as I said, I'm going to tackle that due diligence one, uh, not next show, which will be a guest, but my next solo. I think I'm going to have that on there. I like that a lot. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next week.